Good morning, Springville. Uh, special welcome to all the kids. Uh, it's awesome, always great to have you in service with us. You are a fundamental part of our church family. So these are special Sundays that we get to have you here with us. And uh, Crystal is not wrong. That Good Friday, we call it good for a reason, amen? However, often Good Friday kind of just becomes like this interesting time where for a day, we're just kind of sad and gloomy, right? We just kind of like focus in on all the gory details of the what of the crucifixion. Uh, often we'll just kind of look at Good Friday messages and we'll look at Holy Week and kind of how long and how bad the crucifixion was. And who did what to Jesus and what happened around that. And that's important. Those aren't bad. Looking at the suffering of Jesus is super important. But often the Gospels will not talk about the what of the crucifixion without getting to the so what of the crucifixion. That's why here we are suspended between Friday and Sunday. That's why we can call it Good Friday and not just Sad Friday. Are you with me on that? Now, here's what we have to point out. Our culture today doesn't quite know what to do with death. We don't quite know how to talk about it. We don't kind of quite know where to, to place it. So what we do is, is in our kind of modern culture, we do everything that we can just to kind of avoid making eye contact with, with death. So we just distract ourselves with nice things, shiny things, or the next thing. And as long as we just get enough of good stuff here and now, and I live my best life, I can just stay distracted with trinkets and keep my eyes deflected away from death, away from my own Mortality, that I am human, and that death is our shared destiny. Now, that's not good. You with me on that? That's bad Friday, right? But, but that's not the end of this story. Uh, I remember reading, um, it, was, it was an essay by a, a famous British editor called Diana Athill. And at 96 years old, one of the last things she wrote and published was an essay called, It's Silly to be Frightened of Being Dead. Which is the most British, awkward title you can give an essay. It's silly to be frightened of being dead. Here's a couple things that she said in that essay, which really does capture our modern cultural thinking around death. She says that death is a perfectly natural process. And that we actually shouldn't call it the end of life because it's a part of, of life. And she sums up this entire thing at 96 years old. She sits there and she says, quote, death can't be too bad. Now, if we're intellectually honest, this is helpful because it lifts up the hood of what our culture kind of can only do with death. It's just to say, well, we're, we're all just highly evolved animals with time and chance on our side. And, and, and it's just a natural part of life that life would end and we go back to dust because that's where we came from. But you have to understand what's, what's fundamental here is that what Diana Athill in our modern secular culture says is that if there's nothing before or beyond this material world then, if we're honest, human civilization itself will eventually just disappear 
without a trace. And here's why this matters to you and me. That means that everything good, everything that we enjoy, everything that kind of fills us with joy and gives us life is only temporary and ultimately meaningless in the scope of eternity. Welcome to Church Springville. But do you see the story that modern secular culture gives us? That, that rather than see death as an intrusion and the greatest threat to life, we've just made peace with it. So we avoid making eye contact with it, knowing that it's coming, and we just shrug our shoulders and embrace it as a part of life. When we're, when we're more honest about it, it's the most disruptive thing to ever happen to life. Are you with me on that? That death is quite literally the reversal of all things that give us life. That death is, if not accounted for, it is a giant delete button at the end of anything and everything that we would enjoy. Now, thank, thankfully, there's other voices on this. C.S. Lewis, one of my faves kids, Chronicles of Narnia author C.S. Lewis. You with me? C.S. Lewis wrote an article in 1948 when the threat of the atomic bomb was really real in the middle of the 20th century. And he said this, listen, what were your views about the ultimate future of civilization before the atomic bomb? What did you think all this effort of humanity was to come to in the end? The whole story is going to end in nothing. If nature is all that exists, that is, if there is no God, then all of human civilization will eventually die with the death of the sun, and so humanity will turn out to have been an accidental flicker, and there will be no one even to remember it. Now remember, C.S. Lewis didn't believe that. C.S. Lewis is pointing out that that is the story that our secular culture gives us. The entire premise of the Chronicles of Narnia is that there actually is a God who steps in and sacrifices himself for sinners. That's what Aslan represents, right? Now, thankfully, the stories that Diana Athill or others would tell us, the gospel enters in and gives us a true and better story. So Crystal can call today good because Good Friday is a snapshot of a God who is so consumed by love that rather than just shrug at death and make peace with it, he takes it seriously as the intrusion that it is, steps into it, through it, and takes it on himself to offer us freedom in life. Amen. That's Good Friday. The Apostle Paul is a product of this kind of life. And in Romans chapter 5, he writes this. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the, what does it say? Ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, because that's true, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if, while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? That suspends us between Good Friday and Sunday morning. The fact that this God would actually step into human history, take on flesh, and come and save not the godly, not the righteous, not the ones crushing it, but the helpless and the ungodly. You caught that, right? That's the upside-downness of the gospel. That God wouldn't wait for us to figure it out and get to some standard and make our way to him, but that he actually comes to our rescue when we're, when we're helpless. Good Friday is showing us that God proves his love by giving of himself. And that God loves us at our worst so that we know we can never earn it or lose it. Because here's the thing, love that's freely given can't be lost, amen? Like if it's freely given, then it's not even riding on us, right? Now it can't be lost or taken back if it's just given, if it just proceeds from the love of God. And that's how this love shows up. That Jesus' sacrifice is proof of God's love. That, that he fully enters our world, physically, emotionally, relationally, that this love is incarnational. Now, when we talk about love, we tend to talk about feelings, right? Like, fee I feel like loving. I don't really feel like loving right now. All the married people in the room know that that doesn't matter. Amen? That love is not just a feeling. If we just waited for feelings of love, just fluffy like emotions, we would never act out of love. That's not how love works. Love doesn't just say stuff or feel stuff. Love acts. But actually, love gives. It's very hard to love someone and not give. Now, you could give something and not love somebody. That's true. You can just, well, I don't really love you, but I'll give you stuff. But it's almost impossible to truly love someone and not give. And if we understand that our life really is just made up of what we give our love to the most, then this starts to make more sense. In a real way, our lives are really just shaped by what we love most and the priority of those, those loves. That's just the product of what I decide to give myself to, of the pursuits that I give myself to, of what I decide I'm going to go and give my life to. It's because there's something fundamental in my heart that I say, well, I, I love that, I want it, so I'm going to give myself to it. And the Bible shows up and says that our core problem is actually that we have a disordered love. That we give ourselves and give our loves to lesser things. So the story of the Bible is, is that at, at the root, sin isn't just bad stuff we do. It shows up there, yeah. But that sin is actually a disordering of what we love to do. It's a disordering. It's a, it's a lack of priority in what we love. It's when we overvalue the wrong things. It's when we live our lives sacrificing and giving ourselves to things that will be null and void by, by death. So regardless of how much money we make, how successful we are in our career or, or otherwise, how much influence we gain, how cute our family is or how nice our house is, all of that is wiped clean by death. But Good Friday is good news. Good Friday, 
that there's a self-giving love of this God that death itself cannot stop. It's a love of God that actually rearranges our own love, that it reprioritizes, it brings everything back into perspective. Amen? So right here, the Apostle Paul is reminding us that it's while we were still sinners that Christ died. Don't miss that. Some of you need to hear that. Because God takes death so seriously that rather than just shrug at it, he freely and willingly enters into it to offer us freedom from it. God, who is immune to death, enters into death. That's crazy. That's wild. God, who is not affected by death, steps into death and takes it on himself for us. And it's our disordered love and our shoulder shrug to death, our meh, to death, that's the exact reason why we need the cross. The cross is where all God's promises to save find their fulfillment. And if you remember, if we go all the way back to the beginning of this story, in the garden, as quick as tragedy enters the story of brokenness, as, as quickly as we see a tragic exchange of humanity putting themselves in the place of God, we hear God promise to one day put himself in the place of humanity. Now, my favorite translation of this, kids, how many of you have the Jesus Storybook Bible at home? Yeah, some of us do. My favorite translation of this amazing promise way back at the beginning of the garden comes from the Jesus Storybook Bible, and it says this, listen. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness that you let in here. I am coming for you. And one day he would. One day God himself would come. Church, that's Good Friday. An incarnational love that rearranges all of our love. A love that would come that is so strong that death itself cannot hold it back. And now here's the thing. If some of us are sitting there confused and perplexed, it's because that's normal. Almost every single time Jesus mentions his death that's coming, the disciples are like, huh? Like, like it's a little bit mind-bending, right? So they're always kind of like arguing, especially Peter, arguing with Jesus about like, stop talking about this like death thing that's going to happen to you. Like, you're the Lord, you're the king, you've come, like, like you came so that we can win. Death means that we lost, right? And there's this confusion about Jesus' coming death. And the disciples don't understand it. And they too want to make, just kind of avoid making eye contact with it. Because they're like, no, 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 hold on. I thought, I thought that you were going to come and put an end to this. They didn't have a category for a dead savior, right? Death is not a sign of power. It's a sign that we've lost. But what they didn't understand yet is that the cross didn't put an end to Jesus's mission to save. It was actually just the beginning. That that's what the cross is. It's not a disruption to what God came in the flesh to do, but it's the very reason he came. It's the very proof of his love for sinners. If death is not the ultimate end for sinners, then life takes on an entirely different fullness. 
That's what the cross captures. So how does Jesus do this? Jesus captures this by leaving his disciples with two very important mental pictures. This is what we're going to look at for the rest of our time. He captures this on the eve of his crucifixion, on Holy Thursday, to try to get them to understand what is death the very next day is about to accomplish. We're going to look at two of them. Okay, so on the eve of his betrayal, his arrest and his crucifixion, Jesus celebrates this very specific meal. Do you remember what it was? The Passover. And then there's two things Jesus does that night, that evening, that become the organizing symbols for what he wants his disciples forever to remember about his, his death. And if you remember the Passover, the Passover feast was celebrated every single year by the Jewish community to remember freedom from slavery, specifically freedom from the exodus from Egypt. And then every year, the Jewish community comes along, they celebrate with, with, with bread and, and wine and a Passover lamb, I mean, just good, good food, to remind them that they have been rescued, not because they earned it or got favor with God, because God came and redeemed them and rescued them and then said, hey, because you're free, go and live free. That's what the Passover represents. The first scene I want us to look at is in Matthew 26. And Jesus, on the Passover, watch this. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body. And then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He finishes and he says, but I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. What's happening here? Well, Jesus is simultaneously pointing his disciples back to the first Passover and pointing them forward and pulling a future hope into the present moment for them. He's taking everything that was true of the first Passover and applying it completely fresh to say to his disciples, this Passover is the one to end all Passovers. That, that, that this Exodus celebration is the one to end all Exodus celebration. The freedom that has been offered that we've remembered is now free forever. So he simultaneously points them back and points them forward to show them that we don't just have hope for the future, but that we actually have a hope that's from the future that is pulled back and anchored into the present. Amen? Now here's what's really significant about the, this Passover meal, the Last Supper. There's one thing that's missing from the Passover feast, and that's the lamb. Jesus leaves out the centerpiece of the Passover celebration. Why does he do that? Well, because he is making the point to his disciples that he is the Passover lamb. That it is his blood that will be shed less than 24 hours later for the sins of the world. To offer a new exodus. To offer freedom, not just from the power of sin, but from death itself. He's making the point that every Passover since 
the Passover from Egypt was pointing to this very moment right here. That's a big deal. That's Good Friday. It's where John the Baptist's cry of behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world finds its yes and amen. And that's exactly why he says that he won't drink of the vine until the day that his kingdom will fully come. That we are suspended between the now of the kingdom, but also the not yet of the kingdom. That the kingdom is real, that we can experience a taste of God's reign and rule, but it is not fully realized yet because there's more to come. And that we get to sit in that suspended moment, in the now and the not yet, still experiencing the sting of death, but knowing that there is a day coming, that here we are on Friday, but Sunday is coming. Amen. That's what's happening here at the Passover. That's the first point that Jesus is making here. But there's a second one that he makes in John's gospel that I want us to look at. John 13, John records something slightly different about what happens here. And that's what's so cool about the gospel biographies, right? We have different perspectives and different gospel um, writers kind of stressing different things that happened in the same moment, right? And right here in John 13, the same scene of the Passover, watch what John says. So he got up from supper, right in the middle of the meal, right? He got up from supper. He laid aside his outer clothing, took off his robe. He took a towel and he tied it around himself. And next he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel that was tied around his waist. And he came to Simon Peter in good Peter fashion. Peter's like, no, I'm going to use this opportunity to speak up because I like to do this. When he comes to Simon Peter, he asks, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Now, that wasn't Peter being like, I'm next. You're going to wash these feet? That's Peter going, well, hold on. This, this, there's something very wrong with this moment. You don't wash my feet. Like, like my rabbi doesn't wash my feet, right? So Peter's just pointing out like this. There's something very upside down about what's happening here. Are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing now you don't realize. But afterward, you will understand. And Peter says, you will never wash my feet. But Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. If I don't wash you, you don't belong to me. Now here's what's being stressed here. Here's the scene. In the middle of the Passover feast, Jesus gets up, he interrupts the meal, which is already kind of strange. And he takes off kind of his outer robe, his normal like dinner attire. He takes off his three-piece suit at the banquet, right? And he goes and he puts scrubs on. And then he goes and he kneels down one by one and takes the sandals off of his disciples' feet and he washes them and wipes them on himself. Now don't miss the significance here. He's doing this and then he tells Peter, if I don't wash you, you don't belong to me. If I don't take your dirtiness, your uncleanness onto myself, you won't be free. If I don't redeem you and shed my blood for you and take that on myself, you cannot experience this exodus. You will not be free. Now you got to understand significance of foot washing. Now we don't live in a Western, our Western culture is not an honor shame culture. So this is very strange because well, feet are strange, right? But foot washing in an honor-shame culture 
was a regular practice, but it was a practice that was specifically the most undesirable. And it it was for non-Jewish slaves. That's why Peter is so shocked by this. Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. That's a big deal. So not only do rabbis not wash feet, they wouldn't even have their own disciples wash their feet. So Peter is just pointing out like this is something, this is doing something different to my understanding of like honor and love and, and, and service, right? And you got to understand feet, now they're strange, but feet are really, when you think about it, one of the most hidden, tired, vulnerable parts of us. If I asked all of us in this room, almost all of us would be like, I hate my feet. Maybe 1% of us could be foot models. Mine look like hobbit's feet that have gone all the way from the Shire to Mordor. And I just know this. I just embrace this, right? But all jokes aside, if you think about our feet, it is a very, it's a vulnerable, hidden, intimate part of us. And not only that, our feet bear the weight of our life. Young people, your feet look different than mine. And anybody in here over 70, your feet look different than mine. That's because our feet bear the weight. They mark life. He's washing the most hidden, most vulnerable, most tired part of them. And here's what's interesting. This is the last night that Jesus has with his disciples, which means he could have done anything, right? Like, this is it. This is it. He's going to leave them with one last thing. So think about it. This is magnum opus. Like, it's like, hey, if there's one thing I want you to remember before I'm about to do what I'm going to do. And he does this. He could have he healed some more people. He could have turned more water to wine. He could have quieted a few more storms. He could have taught one more epic parable. But he chooses to serve and to love. He chooses to enter into one of the most vulnerable, intimate experiences with his disciples to show them that if he does not wash them, they do not belong to him. The mental picture here is of self-giving love and service. And he doesn't stop there because what he's doing that night is he is foreshadowing what he is about to accomplish on the cross the very next day. So Springvale, On the day that Jesus is crucified, the very next morning after this scene, nailed to the cross above Jesus's head is his public record of crime. In Rome, when you crucified someone, you would put what they were guilty of above their head. And above Jesus's head, the public record of his crime was, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Jesus is crucified for claiming to be king. Jesus is crucified for showing that he is. And on that day, the public record of his crime is placed there. But on that good Friday, on that afternoon, as the sun went dark and Jesus breathed his last breaths, he wasn't paying for his crimes against the Roman Empire. He was setting captives free from the power and the penalty of sin and death. And here's what's most beautiful about this. In the ancient world, when public records of crime were paid for and done, when it was kind of just put to bed, 
they would mark like a stamp. One word would go on top of that public record of crime, and it's te telestai. Say te telestai. Good. You guys sound good, kiddos. <laughs> te telestai would be marked on there, and it would mean this is paid in full, that it's over, it is finished. Often too, though, a military, a general in the military would come back into the city after going to war. And they would come back in and there would be a parade, a whole bunch of pomp and circumstance. And they would come in and they would shout, Te Telestai. And it would be that victory is won, that it is finished, that peace is here, that war is no more. Springville, as Jesus hangs on the cross and breathes his last breath, one word falls off his lips. Do you know what it is? Te Telestai. It is finished. That the great exchange between God and humanity is finished. That the reversal of the tragic exchange that was made in the garden is reversed. That death has found its match and it is finished because a love that is stronger than death itself has come. And now you and I get to sit suspended today between the now and the not yet that here we are on Good Friday, but Sunday is coming. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate exactly that. We're going to sit in the reality of the Passover, and we're going to take communion together. I'm going to pray for us to that end. Then we have a video to just set the stage for us, and then we're going to be led in communion. Let me pray for us. Loving Father, you are not just a creator, not just the giver of life, but you're the one to rescue us from all things that threaten life. And today, on Good Friday, that Lord, we can call it good because we know that death itself is not just a giant delete button at the end of everything that gives us life but that it's something that you have answered with your own death, that you have taken it on yourself, even though you are immune to it, that you have taken it on yourself to rescue us. And this morning, we sit in that. We sit suspended, understanding the weight of that, but knowing that you've taken care of it and we pull it from the future into this present moment and ask that you would continue to show us that it is your love for sinners that changes everything. And that, Lord, just as sin has infiltrated everything, that one day your resurrection life and your shed blood would answer everything. So as we sing, as we reflect, as we take of your body and of your blood, we pray that you would apply this fresh to our heart and our mind, and that we would find our life in you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.